We thank you, Lord, that we are no longer slaves of fear. We're no longer slaves of sin. And Father, you have not given us the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and love and of self-control. And Father, we can go ahead in confidence and in trust in your sovereignty, trust in your power and your might, trust in your goodness, and faith that you will be faithful to complete those things that you have begun in us as individuals, in us as a body, and in all of human history. And so we, uh, we thank you, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, this is... Sunday, July 12th, in the year of our Lord, 2020. And you know, we, we use that term, in the year of our Lord. <clears throat> With the Gregorian calendar, we use these, uh, the demarcation we use in time, B.C. and A.D. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. And it has Jesus as a central point, or his first advent, as the central point in human history. Now, you know, for a good many years, I mean, I think this, this goes back into the 18, maybe even 1700s. There, but you see it increasingly where they're using the, uh, the letters CE and BCE to differentiate time. CE stands for Common Era. And BCE stands for Before Common Era. And I guess they think that is culturally neutral to use that. They're not going to offend anybody. But it's interesting because even in that, the demarcation point is still the first advent of Jesus. Is that he still designates as the differentiation in, in, as we date time. And it also designates a deeper, deeper truth. The first coming of Christ is the central point in all of human history. His second coming will be the culmination of all human history. So Jesus is central. And he's central to our lives and as individuals and as a body. And he was central to the life of the Apostle Paul. And we are going to begin this Sunday uh, a little summer series on the book of 2 Timothy. And I was, uh, have been privileged with the opportunity to kind of open this up. And one of the things that I wanted to do before I actually get into uh, the text itself is to give a little background on this book of 2 Timothy. You know, one of the things that's interesting about Scripture, it's not merely a list of information or moral or religious obligations, but it was written in real time, in real history. And the people and the events that it speaks of are real people, and they lived in real time. And this not only adds veracity or trustworthiness to the Word of God as being true, because there are things that, we, that can be tested against it, but it also aids in our understanding of the Scripture itself. 
you know, what was going through the minds of these writers when they wrote? What events were going on? And culturally, what was going on with the people that they were writing to? And if we understand that and can get a grasp on that, it helps us to understand what the text itself is saying. Now, the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are referred to as Paul's pastoral epistles. And although it doesn't appear last uh, in the New Testament canon, 2nd Timothy is actually the last letter that Paul wrote that, that is in Scripture. He wrote it after his fourth missionary journey, uh, sometime between A.D. 64 and 68. He wrote it during his second Roman imprisonment. Now, we don't know why he was arrested. Was, he was probably arrested in the city of Troas. We do know this, that Paul received no support at his preliminary hearing. Most of his friends found it convenient to be elsewhere. A number had even turned from him. And there was a man named Alexander who was a coppersmith who had apparently done him great harm. Uh, there was a Christian by the name of Anisiphorus who seems to be alone in this, but he did offer Paul some encouragement, and he was not ashamed of Paul. But it's interesting that despite these dire circumstances, Paul stands unshaken. He was not ashamed to suffer for the gospel, and he was willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul wrote, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. So let's look at uh, just briefly some of the primary themes uh, that this book touches on. Like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy exhibits a strong concern for sound doctrine. Uh, he also, and well, one of the reasons for this is because just like in 1 Timothy, Paul is con uh, concerned about false teaching. And he addressed it in the first letter. He's addressing it here. So apparently, uh, Timothy was in Ephesus, and apparently he was still having some issues with that. And he works here in this letter to underscore, underscore for Timothy the value of the word and the importance of rightly interpreting it or handling it properly. Uh, and actually, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that we get a clear understanding of what Scripture is and what differentiates it from all other writings. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this, uh, this stands as one of the, the, the clear understandings that we have of, of Scripture, that it is actually inspired by God. Uh, now, faithful preaching of the Word involves rightly handling the Word of truth. The Word is true, but it requires us to get a, a clear interpretation of what it's saying. You know, I think we've all have seen examples, and it's happened in the past, where men 
have been able to take Scripture and twist it into saying something it's not really saying at all. Have you ever been confronted when you point something out that is sin and somebody says, well, judge not, lest ye be judged? You know, it was interesting. I, at work one time somebody uh, said that to me. And I said, well, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, um, I don't know. You tell me. And I said, no, no, you're the one who brought it up. I, I hope you're not saying things that you don't really know what they mean. And I'm not going to get into the meaning of that right now, but it is interesting that the Word of God can be, can be thrown out any number of ways to try to, but they're, they're, it's done improperly. It's not rightly handled. So the Word of God has been preserved through the years, and it is what has been called a deposit or a sacred trust that we have. And it's entrusted as a priceless treasure to future faithful custodians who will pass it along unchanged to the next generation. And this is the essence here of what Paul is, is trying to get across to Timothy, is that just as he is passing it along to him, Timothy needs to be concerned about passing it along to others. So Paul admonishes Timothy to pass that message, the true gospel, on and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And there's a, just a few doctrinal points that it might be uh, good for us to, to recognize. Uh, one of the key elements of rightly dividing the word of truth has to do with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, as I said earlier, Jesus is central to all of human history. His first advent was just a pivotal point. And if we are going to rightly preach the true gospel, we have got to have a clear understanding on the person and work of Jesus. If we get that wrong, it doesn't really matter what else we get right, because that is central. And as Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. And he says concerning the work of Jesus, our Savior Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's uh, verse, chapter 1 of uh, verse 10. Another point he brings out is that salvation is by grace alone. As he says in uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then there's the believer's union with Christ. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. So that is just a little brief uh, background on the letter itself. And now we want to kind of delve into uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And would you stand as we read through the Word of God. Starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Well, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. Uh, we ask, Lord, that as we begin to unpack uh, this word in the short time that we have, uh, that the things that we, we, we bring forth, the things that we find, the things that we discuss, uh, that they would be useful in building us up in the faith, uh, and that your Holy Spirit would be free to speak to each and every one of us as we need to hear at this moment. Uh, that we need to hear from your truth. And Lord, um, we just again ask your blessing on the preaching of the word. We thank you for this time together. Uh, and may it be uh, encouraging to us. May it be uplifting to us. May it bring you glory. May it challenge us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we proceed, we're going to focus on different aspects of these first seven verses and how they relate uh, to the, uh, the need for holding to and preaching solid doctrine. And, you know, these greetings of Paul, if you're like me, when, usually when you read them, you just kind of, yeah, he's just saying hello. But it's interesting, the things that he puts into these greetings, and not just him, but Peter does it, and the others as well, and it's like, wow, it is so rich, it's so full of things. In the first two verses, um, and what we're going to see, getting back to the theme, is that Paul's theme is reflected in, even in how he views himself. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now in five of his epistles, Paul asserts that he is an apostle by the will of God. Now it places Paul in a position of authority so that what follows is to be seen not just as Paul's opinion but as the word of God. It also reflects Paul's conviction that he has conducted his life under God's direction in all circumstances. And when he says, by the will of God, it implies that God actively chooses those whom he calls as church leaders. <clears throat> so it's, it's not just a, a sense of bravado. It's not trying to puff himself up. Um, but it is, is declaring his confidence in God and his trust that what he is doing is what God has called him to do. And Paul also calls himself an apostle of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And though he's facing death, for Paul the promise of eternal life resolves the problem of death. As we mentioned earlier, he, he wrote, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Jesus abolished death and brought life through the gospel. 
And this reflects uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where Paul uh, wrote that he does not grieve his own death as others who have no hope. So Paul was, had this opportunity to live out what he had written to the Thessalonians. That he doesn't grieve his coming and impending death. And Paul's theme, we're going to see, is reflected in his greeting. Paul offers grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, now this kind of greeting is, is fairly typical for Paul. Uh, but interestingly, um, in the Greco-Roman world, their letters usually began with the word greetings, which, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Kyrain is the word that they use, and it means greeting. Well, Paul uses a variation of that word, charis, which means grace. So there's a little, a little bit different here because grace is the source of our salvation. It empowers disciples to live out the faith. And with grace, Paul also adds peace. The blessing of peace is interesting because it's coming from someone who's sitting in a prison cell and is about to die. <clears throat> so, you know, and that is an interesting thing about peace in the Christian life. It, it isn't necessarily the kind of peace we would envision. You know, when we think of peace, we think of everything as tranquil. We think everything is going fine. We, we've got no worries. There's nothing to concern us with. <clears throat> but with people like Paul, uh, in the midst of trial, he is still experiencing peace. You know, we're not likely to be completely at rest. Um, and it's not the kind of peace that we would think. A good example is Jesus in the garden. They refer to when just before he was going to die when he, he prayed and asked the Father that the cup would pass from him. That has been termed the agony in the garden. And it's a good, there's a good reason for that because Jesus was in agony. Yet, he was at peace. So the peace that God gives isn't based on circumstances. It's a reflection of our confidence in him. There's no fear of our circumstances, there's a confidence in God. And our goal is to appropriate the peace that Jesus offers. And that peace, again, is a reflection of God, of our trust in him. And although he felt the agony of betrayal, Paul displays a peace. And he also adds mercy. God's mercy is what brings salvation to sinners. It brings sinners to salvation. None of us deserve God's mercy. God is not obligated in the least to save any one of us. Yet he shows us mercy. And that mercy, once it has been received by us, they're divine gifts, and they should be elementary in our lives. And once we receive them, we can then offer them, as Paul does here, to others. We're also going to see that uh, Paul's theme is reflected in how he views Timothy. Paul addresses this letter to Timothy, my beloved son. Now, something I didn't know, I didn't know this. Uh, at the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 
Timothy was about 35 to 40 years old. And so he was obviously going to be older at the writing of this letter, hardly what we would consider a child. But I've, I always kind of assumed that he was incredibly younger than this. But Timothy is Paul's child because he is the legitimate heir of Paul's theology and his authority. It also expresses the deep love that Paul has for Timothy, who is his closest disciple. So that term, my beloved child, is, is not necessarily an age thing, but it's where Paul's heart is. And in 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul expresses thanks for Timothy. He wrote, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers. And there are just two points here that I think tie in with the theme. And one of them, we can, it's one of those, uh, it's two, two words that we can easily pass over. Paul says, uh, where did I have it here? Oh, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. <clears throat> Paul considers, he's alluding here to God's covenants. He's alluding here to the fact that there is a continuity between Paul's ministry and the ministry of all those who came before him and all those who would come after him, which includes us. You know, we, we've been studying in Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. Uh, Hebrews 11 is called the, the, the Hall of Faith. And all these stories of these men of faith, they, those were not isolated events, but they were a part of a chain that, would, that started and has continued on. And as chapter 12 begins, that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that we hear even today, are a part of that chain that began way back at the beginning of time. And it's a part of God's plan. It's not a part of our plan. And it's interesting that Paul talks about having a clear conscience. And him having a clear conscience reflects, is reflective of his understanding of this continuity. Um, prison and impending execution could be seen as failure and could even carry with it a sense of guilt. What did I do to get here? Have you ever had that happen where you feel like you did the right thing and as a result you ended up in trouble? You ended up with a lot of problems and you just had to wonder, I, I don't get this. I did everything right, or at least I thought I did. How did I end up here? But there is an understanding that sometimes God's will for us is discomfort, that God's will for us is trouble, that what God is leading us into is a difficult time. And why that is, uh, sometimes we, we can figure it out, but I would say most of the time we don't know, and it's not really for us to know. Uh, so in Paul's ministry, there had been much trouble and much danger and much heartache. He had been attacked physically and verbally. He had been challenged. He had been maligned. But he understood that ease of life, popularity, riches, earthly blessings are not a measure of success 
in the Christian life. We need only look at the life of Jesus to understand that. You know, Jesus filled, fulfilled his, his role as Savior, and it brought him a lot of trouble. It brought him the cross. So the kingdom of God is not made up of isolated events, but it is a chain. One story, one message from beginning to end, and our lives, even here today, are just one link in that chain. Success, success, therefore, is not determined, again, by popularity or riches. It's not even determined by building a big church or preaching uh, to a large crowd of people. Our call is to be faithful in our service to God, to be his witness of the truth. Our ultimate reward comes on the day, and hopefully we all hear it, where Jesus says to us, well done thou good and faithful servant. And certainly, that, is one, that understanding is what sustained Paul while he was in prison. That he could offer peace and grace and mercy as a, as a greeting. And that he could speak about having a clear conscience. <clears throat> and he could speak about being at peace and having confidence in the one uh, whom he served. Now, let's, and this is probably going to be a, a big bulk of uh, where we want to go, uh, the false teaching. And I think the reason I, 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 I say that is because this is where it will it, become a little bit more practical for us. Because we, just like the Apostle Paul, are called to be witnesses in the world uh, among the people that we associate with. And that witness will be in our actions, it'll be in our words, it'll be in everything we do. And some of the things that Paul was dealing with in his day um, are not all, even actually all that different. The particulars may be different, but... Uh, not in the, in gen, the general sense. Uh, false teaching was characterized with what Paul terms as myths, endless genealogies, quarrels about words, speculations, controversy, what is falsely called knowledge, vain discussion, and irrelevant babble. And those are th terms that he uses throughout the books of First and Second Timothy. Now, it, it's hard to determine what exactly these things were. Um, but we do know, especially in the early church, you almost would expect that there was going to be all kinds of confusion, all kinds of uh, teaching going on about who Jesus was, what he did. Uh, and so Paul had to stand up against that. And, and generally, in, even in the churches that he founded, once he would leave, he had to be on guard against these false teachers. And of course, he's warning Timothy here. But, you know, I, I thought of this unfounded speculations. Those things are going on today. And I, I just want to give you a, a, an example of this. Uh, because I, this was one of those things that it just, I, I just couldn't believe um, that what I was reading. It was in Time magazine, and the back 
if you, the back cover, they, they, I don't know, if, I guess they still do, but they had a, a short Q&A with somebody. Sometimes they were political figures, uh, sometimes they were celebrities. In this case, it was a writer. And he had written a book about Adam and Eve. And he began it by saying, Adam and Eve were the biggest victims of character assassination that the world has ever known. And I thought, okay, this is gonna be interesting. Uh, and this is what he said, the story is not one of disobeying God, it's about obeying the larger message, which is making the relationship work. He said, the entire point of the story, the entire point of the story is fulfilling God's mission to be fruitful and multiply. And he wrote, in Adam and Eve, the first key moment is when Eve eats the fruit and decides to go back to Adam. And the second is when Adam chooses companionship over duty. I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I read that, and what astounded me was you don't even have to be a theologian to know that the entire point of the story of Adam and Eve was not about making a relationship work. You know, the whole, you have to ignore all the rest of Scripture and what it refers to the fall in order to make a, a stupid point like that, which I think is stupid. Um, but this guy wrote a book and it sold. And I saw an interview that he did, well, it was like a talk he was giving, it looked like at, like at a bookstore and there was Q&A after that. And so obviously he's got some success with this kind of stuff. But I thought, you have to ignore all the rest of the testimony of scripture which points back to the fall as man rebelling against God and being the reason that God had to send his only son into the world to redeem man. Yes, there was a relationship uh, that needed to, to be maintained. And Adam and Eve did not maintain it. They broke it. And it took Jesus Christ to come back and to restore it. So that's, you know, that was just one of the... And I'll tell you what, I, every once in a while I come across things like that. And they just... I, I, it's like I, I want to call or write or do something to, you know, point that out. And I thought, you know what, I, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. And if I can tear those things apart, how deep can, these, can they be? But, but these kinds of speculations, these kinds of myths and irrelevant babble go on all the time. And sometimes it's within the church itself, which is really sad. Uh, liberal theology, which was kind of, uh, I guess, what we would consider modern uh, uh, liberal theology, it kind of birthed in the Renaissance and grew throughout the 19th century and really began to take hold in the 20th century. And what liberal theology has, I mean, there's no, there's no definition, uh, but, and it varies, but a couple key elements, they will deny usually the inerrancy of scripture, they will deny the deity of Jesus, and they will deny the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And again, you know, you get Jesus wrong, it doesn't matter how much other stuff you get right. You get him wrong, you know, you might as well, it doesn't matter what you do, you know. That's why my wife was talking to somebody who had uh, Jehovah Witness come to her door. 
And this woman said, well, some of the things they say sound good, you know, and, and the thing that my wife pointed out was, you know, don't argue those points, because some of them they probably are right on. The point you need to, to focus on is Jesus, because they have that wrong, and if they get that wrong, it doesn't matter what else is right. So, so we are fighting this kind of stuff within the church, but it's also without the church as well. Um, subjective morality, you know, that has, has been around, but it's really like hypered in the past several years. And interesting, it's guided by an inconsistent ideology. Francis, Francis Schaeffer, writing back in the 1970s in his book, The God Who Is There, pointed this out. No non-Christian can be consistent to the logic of his presuppositions. Now, a presupposition, that is a fact or something that you would presuppose to be true before you start your argument. You're not going to argue that. That is where you begin. You're, the assumption is that is true, and you begin to argue from there. So he said, no non-Christian can be consistent to the logic of his presupposition. No matter what a man may believe, he cannot change the reality of what is. Non-Christian presuppositions simply do not fit into what God has made, including what man is. This being so, every man is in a place of tension. Man cannot make his own universe and then live in it. And, <clears throat> you know, in our day... Men will claim that morality is subjective and everybody determines for themselves what is right and wrong, yet they will judge an act they dislike as offensive or unacceptable or evil or wrong. And that's where that disconnect is. Um, a, a good example of this, or an illustration of this, I saw the late Ravi Zacharias. He was asked a question I think it had something to do with homosexuality, gay marriage, or something. And the person asked him this question, and he said, before I answer your question, I just want to get something, you know, some foundation here. He said, my understanding is, is that there are three types of cultures as it relates to morality that we can live in. The first of these is theonomous. Theos means God, nomos means law. And in this, God, or his word, dictates the moral standard. We used to refer to this sometimes as natural law. And this we would see reflected in something like the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that every man is endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights. So what they're saying there is, the rights that we have do not come from government, they do not come from man, they come from our creator. And Zachariah said, well, you would probably agree that, that we do not live in that kind of culture. And the man said, no, we don't. He said, well, that brings us to the second one. It's heteronymous. Heteros means other, nomos means law. And he said, this is where the morality is dictated to the masses by leaders or those at the top. You would see this kind of things in communist countries where there's a, a dictator or with a king. And even today in Muslim countries uh, where the, the religious leaders dictate to the masses what is right and what is wrong. And Zachariah said, you would agree we don't live in that kind of culture. And the man said, no, we don't. 
And he said, well, that leaves us with the only other alternative, which is autonomous. Auto meaning self, nomos meaning law. And in this, <clears throat> everyone determines for themselves their moral prerogatives, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And the man said, yes, that is the culture we live in. And so Zachariah said, well, before I answer your question, if we're living in an autonomous culture and I dis you disagree with my answer, are you going to give me the privilege of my autonomy or will you switch to a heteronymous mode and dictate to me what I must believe? And, you know, we see that. We see that, in, and that's where you have this disconnect. There's, there's a, a, a proclamation of one thing, but it cannot be lived out. I mean, let's face it, if everybody is autonomous, then you have just anarchy and you have chaos. But this is, this is all, this kind of thinking uh, is, is all of, uh, we see this in Romans, and it's, it's the result of people who have turned against God. As it says here uh, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we see that, again, reflected in much of what is being pushed as good and moral. And interestingly, a lot of it is countercultural to what we would call the good. Or, you know, there's a term I've heard, and I like it. It's called human flourishing. What is good for human flourishing? And a lot of the things that are being presented as good for human flourishing are actually destructive of human flourishing. And it reminds me of what uh, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2.19, speaking about false teachers. He said, they promise them, their listeners, freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So we do have this term, human flourishing. And Paul points out some of the things that Timothy has that lead, will lead to him flourishing in not just in his life, but in his ministry. And he, he talks about Timothy's lineage. His grandmother, Lois, his mother, Eunice, were believers. And Timothy now is a believer. And what a blessing it is to have family members walking with the Lord. You know, we're living in a time where the word privilege is being thrown out a lot. And there is perhaps no greater privilege than to be raised in an intact family where God is honored and his ways are lived out. And I, you know, as I was thinking of that, I thought even within our own church here, we have, just within this church itself, third and fourth generations of families walking with the Lord. And that is really an incredible blessing. And I'm sure there are other family members here and other generations that are not attending here, but, but even with our own church, there are several where we see several generations like that. But many of us don't have that kind of a heritage. Many of us, even currently, we are, have families that are broken 
or they're disjointed. But we can start today. We can start today with what we have, where we are, and begin to build a heritage for the future. So that three generations down the road, someone can say to our grandchildren, the faith that was in you, that was in your grandfather, that was in your grandmother, that was in your parents, that is now in you. So the subject of family gives us an example of futility, futile thinking in our day. Because the cultural ideology that we see where you're trying to redefine marriage, you're going to redefine the family. And there are some groups that are determined to destroy the nuclear family, that that is one of their goals. And they think it is going to bring liberty. But in reality, it's going to bring destruction. And so these are the, the kind of things that we as believers are facing. And you know, it is, it is really um, surprising to me. Some of the things that I see people standing for and proclaiming I gotta be honest, they seem like something I would have seen in a skit from a comedy show 20, 30 years ago. And now it is actually reality. But we have tools for the task. Uh, you know, whether it's a family heritage, uh, in Timothy's case and in all our cases, there is also the gift, the gifting of God. As Paul said, fan into flame the gift that you have. Uh, It seems that Timothy's personality was uh, probably less than forceful. And Paul knew that the churches could be prone to despise him. So he encourages him, the the gifts that he has, to begin to fan those into flames. And they're more than just abilities. (coughs) They are God-given capabilities and capacities to bestow grace and empower believers. And Paul also exhorts uh, Timothy with this statement in in, uh, verse 7. He says that God gave us not a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Power. Paul speaks of the gospel as the power of God for salvation. He speaks of Jesus as the power of God. That is something that God has given us to equip us. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the gospel to save. He's given us a spirit of love. God has poured his love under our hearts. Therefore, we can love others, remembering that we love because he first loved us. And he gave us self-control, and this this one can be a little harder for us to walk in, I think. Uh, Self-control signifies the self-discipline born of sober thought and a refusal to indulge sin. We need self-control to keep working in the face of opposition. And these gifts will make us fearless. Not a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of fearlessness. Paul routinely displayed a fearless desire to walk into the face of danger, such as when he, he wanted to address the anger enraged mob in Acts chapter 19. Paul admitted to the Corinthians that he was fearful and weak when he arrived, but 
he pressed on nevertheless. Be bold in the face of adversity. And when preaching about the word of truth in a culture that considers subjective feelings to be reality and objective facts to be mere social constructs, I can guarantee you, if you're speaking truth to those people, to that generation, you can expect adversity. You're going to get it. So here's, here's the challenge to us. We have been entrusted with the saving revelation of Jesus Christ. In, first, uh, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul exhorts Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that he had heard from Paul. <clears throat> this is the origin of the notion of orthodoxy. You know, by the 1500s, church traditions had been added to the gospel of faith and regarded as part of it, even when they could not be reasonably traced back to the actual writings of the apostles. This led Martin Luther to declare in one of his 95 theses, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This deposit of faith must be carefully guarded by those entrusted to preach the word so that nothing foreign can be new or added to it. The Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. The inspiration is plenary, meaning that it's absolute, it's unqualified, and it extends from the beginning to the end. The inspiration is verbal, extending to the very words of the Bible. The Bible, therefore, is inerrant without error, in all that it informs. And we are living in a time where there is growing antagonism for the Christian faith, for Christianity, even for God himself. Much of what we believe is being misunderstood, misrepresented, and this causes the church to be maligned and marginalized. And we, in the midst of that, need to be bold. We need to be able to stand up and speak what is true. You know, there is one encouragement in this. The more liberal theology moves away from the true gospel, and the more our culture moves away from sound morality, the greater the light will appear. There's, no, there's going to be no gray areas. It's dark and light. And we have the opportunity as we speak the truth, it'll stick out all the more. And I, I, I like this, um, this final uh, slide we're going to put up here. A friend of mine a number of years ago, oh, you, oh well, we can skip that, I'm sorry. I skipped over that one. Uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine was uh, going through a, uh, a graveyard and came across a headstone, had no name on it, no dates on it. All it had on it was 2 Timothy 4.7. You can put that slide up, 2 Timothy 4.7. And it says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That was Paul's epitaph. You know, one of the things that I, I've always thought, you know what, if there's anything on my gravestone, I, I would like to have that on there. I'd like it to be true, of course, and I'm, I'm trusting that it will be. Uh, 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The problem isn't how we can change Christian teaching in order to make it more palatable, but how to communicate the gospel so that it can be understood. You know, the church is sometimes admonished to alter their stance on different issues like homosexuality or abortion. And we're warned, if you don't do that, you may find yourself on the wrong side of history. And I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that if we hold true to the word of God that we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. I believe holding fast to the word of truth will keep us not only on the right side of history, but on the right side of eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very narrow, very restrictive thing to say, but it remains very true. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to do one final song. And Lord, help us as the church to arise and to let your light shine because the gospel needs to be heard. The gospel needs to be presented. Keep us from compromise. Keep us from shying away from what is true. Help us to be students of the word, to know what your word says, to know what we are to believe and what is sound doctrine so that we can rightly handle your word of truth. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus.